Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. It's been a while since I recorded a podcast, and sorry for those of you who have been looking forward to them and had to wait until today to hear one. I was out in Las Vegas for Freedom Fest, and that's a conference I go to every year. You know, I go to Vegas usually two or three times a year. It happens to be a pretty good conference town. A lot of companies or events are held in Las Vegas and Freedom Fest. In fact, if it wasn't for Freedom Fest, I would never go to Las Vegas in July. You know, it's like walking into an oven. Uh, But most of the time I spend inside, and so it's a lot more fun inside than out. But, you know, before I get to some of my comments on what's been happening in the markets and in politics uh, since my last podcast, let me talk a little bit about the lessons that we can learn about the U.S. economy just from my trip to Vegas. So I arrived in Las Vegas a week ago Monday. Now, I arrived, but unfortunately, my luggage did not. I checked my luggage in at JFK, and it never came off the carousel in Las Vegas. And when I actually checked with Delta Airline, they were able to track your bags. And they actually have a a record of your bag when you give it to the the person at the beginning where you you check in. And then they have a record when the luggage is put on the plane. Then they have another record when it's taken off the plane. And then they have another record when it's put on the carousel. Well, my bag, they have a record of it going on the plane, but they never have a record of it coming off. Now, who knows if it actually ever got on or what happened to it, but it's gone. Here it is eight days later. They still have not been able to find my luggage. Now, what I actually had to do, I arrived in Las Vegas with just the clothes I was wearing. And I was there for a conference. I, you know, I have workshops. I'm talking on panels. I'm doing interviews. So I need suits. So I had to buy an entire wardrobe, right? Because you need suits, you need belts, you need shoes, you need ties. I had to buy underwear, socks. Then, you know, you have evening wear. You go out uh, to a club. You know, I went out on uh, Friday night and I saw uh, the chain smokers. I mean, you know, you, so I'm not going to wear a suit to a chain smoker conference. So I had to get some jeans, some shirts. You know, it's a whole new wardrobe that I pretty much had to rebuy. But the, the point of, of my bringing this up is when I initially thought that maybe somebody stole my bag off the carousel, that somebody somebody grabbed it uh, before I had a chance to see it. And, um, you know, it's a nice bag. It's a relatively new Ramoa, so maybe people decided that they wanted that bag. And the woman that was in line in front of me, that's exactly what happened to her because her bag was shown as having been loaded on the carousel, but she didn't get it. And, in fact, somebody there told me that yesterday three bags were stolen off the JFK flight to Las Vegas. So they, they said that the thieves like that flight because, you know, people are coming in from New York and generally they think they might have some valuable things in, in their bag. And so three people had their luggage stolen the day before. And the reason I'm bringing this up is back in the day, I mean, when I was younger, the baggage claim ticket 
was actually to claim your luggage. Because when you went to baggage claim, you had to show a security guard your claim check, right? And then they would take the claim check that you had and match it with the one on the baggage to make sure that you were taking the right bag. There was security in the airports at uh, baggage claim. There wasn't that much security getting out of the plane, but there was all sorts of security getting off to make sure that nobody stole anyone's bags. Now all the security is to make sure an old lady doesn't sneak a bottle of water on the plane. Meanwhile, there is zero security. Anybody can walk into the baggage claim, right? There are no uh, security guards. Anybody can walk in a baggage claim, grab any bag they want, and walk out. And nobody's going to question them. And so there's all this stuff going on at airports. But obviously, there's a lot of people that don't have jobs. Why don't the airlines hire them to work as security guards? Because they can't afford it. You know, a lot of the airline employees are unions. The, u the airlines are very heavily unionized and the wage scales are very high. Meanwhile, the airlines are being forced to spend money in other ways. So they've cut back. They no longer have that job. It's been regulated, uh, unionized, whatever it is. It's, it no longer exists. And the airlines are willing to allow baggage to be stolen and then, you know, pay claims for passengers who have lost their luggage. But these are, again, examples of jobs that have been eliminated by unions or by the minimum wage or by uh, Obamacare and mandatory uh, compensation. I mean, these jobs should exist. I would have had a much better trip if I didn't have to spend my first day in Las Vegas shopping, you know, because I had to buy I had to buy clothes. It was a wasted day and, of course, a waste of money. I had to buy a bunch of clothes that were lost. Why don't we have these jobs anymore? These jobs are gone. And this is, again, an indication of our falling standard of living because now people have to be subjected to more crime. And these jobs don't exist. I mean, these jobs, there should be people there, uh, but they're not. But, you know, another uh, piece of anecdotal evidence, which is also on inflation and employment. You know, I've been going to Las Vegas for a long time and I've never had to pay for parking other than tipping the valet. It's always been free, right? You can valet park for free or you can self-park for free. And generally, the reason that people would self-park when valet was free is because, you know, you wouldn't have to tip the valet, right? So it's free, but, you know, you, it's expected to tip. So I guess if, if you wanted to save the five bucks, you could, you could self-park. But sometimes people would self-park because if you go to a casino at night and you're trying to leave a club or something, you can have a long wait, you know, waiting for the valet to bring your car. So sometimes it's quicker to self-park, but it never cost anything. Now, all of a sudden, for the first time, you got to pay to park in Vegas. The hotels are now charging anywhere from 14 to 18 bucks for valet parking, and self-parking is almost as high. Brand new. They just started doing this. Now, of course, according to the government, there is no inflation. Well, how much inflation is there when something used to be free and now it costs 18 bucks? I mean, that's an infinite percentage inflation, but this is the kind of stuff that's going on all over the country. Prices are going up. It doesn't get recorded in the CPI, but it does get recorded in the wallets, the pocketbooks of the consumers that have to pay uh, these higher prices. You know, by the way, the valet parking attendants hate this. They're all complaining about it because they're now making less money than they were before. Because when people didn't have to pay to park, okay, you tipped the you tipped the valet. But when people are paying almost twenty dollars to park their car, they don't feel like giving more money to the valet. 
In fact, maybe people assume that the valet parkers are just getting paid higher wages because of the, these fees, but, but they're not. They're making less money. I mean, valet parker used to be one of the most coveted jobs uh, for young people in Las Vegas because the tips could be huge. But now the tips are evaporating. So this is the story of the American economy. Prices are going up, but wages are going down. It costs more money to valet park your car or to park your car yourself but the people who are parking the cars, the workers, the valets, are actually earning less money now with higher prices than they earned before. So you have rising prices, you have falling wages. This is the real U.S. economy. And the anecdotal evidence is there. All you have to do is, is, is look around. I mean, forget about all these phony government statistics. The real world gives you the truth about what's going on in the economy and about why you know Donald Trump is president. Again, I wish that the candidate Trump would come back. I'd rather see the president questioning these phony statistics instead of embracing them. I'd like to see the president talking about the stock market being a bubble rather than a bull market and claiming credit for the increase. But anyway, let me get to what's been going on in, uh, in the market. The big story in the market is the continued weakness in the U.S. dollar. In fact, earlier this morning, the dollar index hit a new low for the year it's now back in positive territory as I'm recording this podcast, but the low this morning was 93.64 on the dollar index. Remember, the dollar index rose about 6% between the election of Donald Trump and the inauguration of Donald Trump. And the reason for the rally was the optimism right, surrounding all the economic growth that we were going to get as a result of tax cuts, deregulation, right? all this stuff that was going to happen. And of course, all this was also going to result in a tighter Fed because we were now going to have fiscal stimulus. And so we weren't going to need as much monetary stimulus. Now, remember, at the time, I argued that that was nonsense. And of course, so far, I'm being vindicated because here we are, we're six months into the uh, Trump presidency and nothing has happened. I mean, they haven't even been able to repeal Obamacare, nor are they going to repeal the Obamacare. I mean, the Senate has already backed away from the version that I said would not work. I mean, Trump did a press conference uh, yesterday talking about Obamacare and wanting to replace it, but assuring everybody that the pre-existing conditions ban is going to stay. But the very essence of Obamacare is that insurance companies can't charge sick people more for insurance than they charge healthy people. That's the essence of Obamacare that doesn't work, and that's what uh, Donald Trump and everybody wants to preserve. The, now, of course, in order to achieve that goal, they had to have the employer mandates and the penalties. That's the only thing that uh, the Republicans want to get rid of is the penalties and the mandates. But they want to preserve the very essence of Obamacare. And that is what those mandates and penalties were designed to deliver. So now they just have to come up with a different way to deliver the promise of Obamacare. But they don't want to repeal it. They want to preserve it. They just want to go about it in a different way. But of course, it doesn't matter how you go about it. It's impossible to work. But the point is that the currency markets have figured this out. The dollar has dumped better than 10% since uh, the inauguration. But the stock market has made new highs. The Dow Jones is at a new high today. The Nasdaq hit a new high yesterday. So it's a disconnect because the initial rally in the stock market happened for the same reason as the rally in the dollar. Well, the currency traders have connected the dots. What's the problem with the stock traders? Why are the stock traders 
oblivious. Well, because the weakness in the dollar is also sparking a rally now in multinationals. It's sparking a rally in commodities. Commodity prices are rising. Industrial commodities are rising. Look at the, look at the move today in Freeport McMoran. That stock is up better than 13%, major copper producer. But we're seeing a lot of these types of stocks rising. Oil prices are coming back. Oil's up better than a dollar a barrel today. We're almost at $48 a barrel as I record this. Uh, emerging markets are strong. I've been saying this, that a weak dollar is extremely bullish for commodities. Why is it bullish for commodities? Because commodities are priced in dollars. And as commodity prices go down, demand goes up. But this is very bullish for emerging markets because A, they export commodities, but B, emerging markets have a lot of dollar-denominated debt. And every time the dollar goes down, it's like a tax cut. The debt is cheaper to service. It's cheaper to repay. So I think the U.S. stock market is getting caught up in the rise in global stocks in general. And again, the idea that a weak dollar is now good for corporate earnings. I mean, initially it was going to be tax cuts and economic growth that were going to power corporate earnings. Now it's a weak dollar. But a bull market based on a weak dollar in the U.S. is not sustainable. And of course, a weak dollar is very negative for the U.S. economy. It means that prices are going up for American consumers, and eventually it means interest rates are going up from American borrowers because we're going to have to pay foreigners more to compensate them for the risk of the dollar declining between the time they make the loan and the time they are repaid. But also, this is something that nobody is talking about. This decline in the dollar is going to worsen our trade deficit, and it's going to cause Donald Trump and the Republicans to now look for a solution, maybe you know, in terms of uh, retaliation or maybe a trade war, uh, protection. Now, why do I say this? Because a lot of people say, oh, when the dollar is, uh, is weak, that improves our balance of trade because people buy more American products because they're cheaper. That's not the way it works, at least not initially. In the long run, if your currency is weak enough, it will reduce your trade deficit. The economists call this the J-curve. But as the dollar goes down, that means Americans have to pay more for their imports because they have to use their dollars to buy the foreign currencies. So a weak dollar initially increases the cost of your imports. And assuming you continue to import, your bill is higher. At the same time, you're getting less for your exports. So a weak currency is actually going to drive the trade deficits higher. In fact, I think the trade deficits are going to hit record highs as the dollar continues to fall. See, one of the reasons is Americans don't have the ability to substitute domestically produced goods. I mean, part of the argument of people who think that a, a weak dollar will reduce your trade deficit is that, well, a weak dollar will make foreign goods more expensive, and so you'll just buy domestic goods instead. But in most cases, there are no domestic alternatives. You have to buy foreign goods or you don't buy anything. And so if your only choice is to buy foreign goods— and foreign goods become more expensive, well, then you can't substitute a lower-cost U.S. good that doesn't exist, so you're stuck paying the higher prices. Now, the other thing you can do is just not buy, and eventually, if the dollar falls enough and prices rise high enough, people are not going to buy. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so negative on the consumer, negative on the retail sector, because the price of everything that they're going to be retailing is going to be going up. And so not only do they have to worry about cutthroat competition uh, from a company like Amazon— but they're going to have to worry about the fact that their consumers can't afford to pay the rising cost of the goods that they're trying to sell. 
especially when they're already loaded up with record amounts of auto debt, student loans, credit card debt, and they have lousy jobs. They used to have one good full-time job, and now they have two or three lousy part-time jobs that still don't pay as much as the one good job that they used to have. And of course, the only debt that isn't at a record is mortgage debt, and that's because home ownership is at a 60-year low. And if you don't own a home, you obviously don't have a mortgage. But what you do have is rent, and rent has been rising rapidly across the country. And so households are being uh, you know, pinched between rising rent and rising consumer debt, and now they're going to have rising prices. Uh, rising interest rates. I mean, they're getting it from all angles. So um, I, I think that this rally is very suspect in the U.S. market because the very basis of it turns out to have not been true. And how long will it take before uh, stock investors connect the same dots that can, currency investors have already connected? Now, I've been saying this for a while, but again, if you are a client at Euro-Pacific Capital, this is the time to add to your account. I mean, I mean, obviously, it was a better time at the beginning of the year or at the beginning of last year. But to the extent that you have money in the U.S. stock market and you've you know, been able to enjoy some gains in the U.S. stock market, too, you can still get out of U.S. stocks, which are clearly overpriced, get out of the U.S. dollar, which is even more overpriced, and diversify internationally. I mean, this, I believe, is just the beginning of a multi-year run in foreign markets and emerging markets and commodities. And I think this boom is going to be bigger than the boom we had from 2001 through 2008. Uh, so those of you who have an account, you should be adding to them. Those of you who don't have accounts, you should be establishing them. I think the timing is great. I think the momentum is simply going to improve. The trajectory of the dollar's decline is going to accelerate, I believe, especially when the economic data is weak enough that the Fed can no longer claim that everything is great. And more importantly, when they can blame the weakness on Trump, instead of having to accept responsibility for the weakness, they can lay the blame on Trump. After all, Trump has already taken credit for how great the economy is. And he says it's his policies and his leadership that are responsible for both the strong economy and the record high stock market. So now when the economy and the stock market both tank, it's not the Fed's fault, it's Trump's fault. And now the Fed can come to the rescue with the same policies that failed before. But when they have to do this, when they have to abort the rate hikes and go back to cuts, when they have to forget about quantitative tightening and go back to quantitative easing, that's when the bottom really drops out of the dollar. That's when you really start to see a surge in commodity prices and gold prices. And by the way, gold prices are still not going anywhere. Gold's just around $12.50 an ounce. And given how weak the dollar has been, you would expect a stronger gold price. I think this is still going to happen. I think right now people are more enamored with the strength in the stock markets in general. As I said, stocks all around the world are going up. And so people are enthusiastic about that and they're not as worried. And so they're not buying gold. But at some point, the weakness in the dollar and strength in commodities is going to spill over into gold. Meanwhile, the most crowded trade on Wall Street when the year began was long the dollar. Everybody was long the dollar, and that trade has been a disaster. Well, another crowded trade is short gold, short silver. The same people that were long the dollar are short gold. And I think they're going to get burned on that trade even more than they're getting burned on their dollar trade. So we can position ourselves to take advantage of those bad bets. And I think that year to date, my gold stocks are basically my worst performers. I mean, even though they're up and they're up nicely, 
right? They're not up as much as my non-gold stocks are up. And that's a lot of that is because of the foreign exchange. It's the tailwind of a weak dollar that is really powering uh, my portfolio. Of course, it was the headwind of a strong dollar that was undermining the returns that I was able to achieve investing internationally in 2014, 2015. But that was all a bubble. That dollar strength was based on a misconception of the efficacy of Fed policy and the future trajectory of that policy. It was based on a lack of understanding of the true nature of the U.S. economy and the phony recovery. But I think as the truth begins to to come to light and more people begin to see it, then that whole dollar uh, rally unravels. Uh, all those ill-gotten gains are surrendered. And I think we make new lows in the dollar. So, but before that happens, take advantage of it. Right. Not just by buying gold and buying silver, but talking about that. That's a small portion of your portfolio. The majority of your portfolio should be invested overseas in equities, dividend paying companies, good quality companies, utilities, property trucks, telecom, reliable companies in sound countries, countries that are making uh, fewer economic mistakes, that have higher savings rates, that have trade surpluses that have budget surpluses or balanced budgets, you know, where the people are saving and, and, and funding their own retirement, not relying on government-engineered Ponzi schemes. There are a lot of characteristics that I look for uh, in, in countries and safe havens. But believe me, we need a safe haven, and the people who are taking refuge in the dollar in the U.S. as a safe haven are going to find out that they jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. You know, speaking about... Jumping from the frying pan into the fire, I got to talk a little bit about the cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin. It's been on a wild ride ever since I did my last podcast. I remember when I was speaking before, uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies were falling. And in fact, Bitcoin fell all the way down to 1820 or 1830, I think is the low. And of course, when I say all the way down, I mean, that's still a very high number uh, based on where Bitcoin started this run. But it had gotten up around 3,000, and then it went all the way down to about you know 1,800. And then it snapped all the way back. It got up to about 3,000 again. I mean, one day, I think it was up better than 25%. And that was the day where Goldman Sachs came out and said some positive things about Bitcoin and how high the price might go. Now, I am very suspicious of anything that Goldman Sachs says, because they generally talk their book and whatever they're saying, you generally want to do the opposite because they're generally trying to influence the markets so that they can profit from the movements that they create. So if Goldman Sachs is publicly saying, buy Bitcoin, it's going up, what they're privately trying to do is sell Bitcoin. See, the way Goldman Sachs operates is they buy it first and then they pump it up. And as they're telling the public to buy, they're selling. I mean, this is how they operate. This is business as usual for Goldman Sachs. And I would be surprised that so many in the Bitcoin community are so quick to embrace Goldman Sachs when they're like the villain, right? They're like the, the poster child for what's wrong with the banking system, right? Everybody wants to vilify Goldman Sachs until uh, they, they say something positive about, uh, about Bitcoin. Now, all of a sudden, they're your best friend, right? Well, you know, I would be very suspicious about getting into bed with Goldman Sachs if I was uh, a Bitcoiner. Uh, you know, be careful, you know, because uh, you get in bed with them, you know what's going to happen. So I don't trust anything that they're saying when it comes to this. It just makes sense that maybe Goldman Sachs, when uh, Bitcoin collapsed all the way down from 3000 to below 2000 maybe Goldman took advantage, bought a bunch of Bitcoin and then, you know, pumped it up for the dump. 
Anyway, as I'm recording this, we're back in the 2500. So, you know, we're now back in the middle. I think the, the low so far today is 2511 as I'm recording this. Uh, so, you know, there has been a lot of volatility here in, in Bitcoin. But what I want to talk about is some of the, the criticism that I've been getting uh, in the Bitcoin community because, you know, I'm not on board. You know, it, it reminds me of that Jerry Seinfeld the episode where, you know, I, I guess I think it was Seinfeld, George or uh, Jerry or, you know, didn't want to wear the ribbon. There was this ribbon and they're like, you know, it doesn't want to wear the ribbon. You know, and they were all, you know, ready to beat the guy up because he didn't want they didn't want to wear this ribbon. They didn't want to conform uh, to uh, to what everybody thought. And it's like, you know, hey, I got to conform. I got to get in line. I got to get behind Bitcoin, you know, or else. Right. I'm a bad guy. You know, I'm, and there's all sorts of videos. You know, I mentioned the first one that that came out a while ago that tried to create this ridiculous um uh, theory that I somehow was partnering up with George Soros, that I, I sold my company to George Soros, and that you know I was helping George Soros to take over the, the Texas gold depository, and I'm some kind of double agent, and some kind of a, you know, uh, just, you know, working for the man or whatever it was, which is complete nonsense, because none of that is true. Yet it doesn't stop uh, people from making these allegations. I think these allegations were from a gold money competitor, uh, just trying to steer people away from gold money to their company uh, and and doing it by trying to create, you know, just a very false impression or of me or trying to damage my reputation among people who, you know, they thought would be potential customers. But now this whole theory is moving over into uh, the Bitcoin community. Somebody else came up with a with a video while we were down in in uh, at Freedom Fest, basically saying I'm some kind of an insider shill, that the reason I'm against Bitcoin is because I'm trying to bring down uh, Bitcoin. I'm trying to help the establishment, you know, bring down Bitcoin to protect the government. Monopoly. I mean, all kinds of nonsense. I mean, it doesn't they don't stop to consider that my skepticism may be grounded in logic. It may be grounded in reason that maybe I don't uh, advocate it because I don't think it's going to work. And, you know, they use the price. The fact that the price has gone way up is somehow supposed to prove that I'm wrong. Well, I've never said the price couldn't go up. In fact, I've always said that Bitcoin was a bubble or in a bubble. And I said, I have no idea how big the bubble is going to get before it's going to pop. And the fact that the bubble has gotten a lot bigger doesn't mean that it's not a bubble. And it doesn't mean that I'm wrong. And in fact, I think that's why my critics don't want to concentrate on my arguments. They want to just vilify me. They want to say I'm a bad guy. They want to say I don't understand it. Maybe I do understand it. Maybe they don't understand it. Right? But there's a lot of people that probably don't understand it. That's why the price has gone up. But I think more importantly than that, I think you have a lot of speculators that couldn't care less what Bitcoin is or any other cryptocurrency is. They're just in it for a buck. They're just buying it because it's going up. They're just buying it because they think they're going to make a lot of money. And in fact, this guy in his video is criticizing me for not recommending that my clients buy Bitcoin. How am I going to recommend that my clients buy Bitcoin? I mean, A, I mean, that would be a, a, a irresponsible recommendation for me to make, to go, I'm a licensed stockbroker, Series 7 broker. I'm going to go out and tell my clients to buy Bitcoin. I mean, first of all, I, I, I think it's too speculative uh, for me to make as a recommendation. But what if it collapses? Now, look, how many, how many lawsuits am I going to get? It's easy. Um, you know, just go to FINRA and file an arbitration. You know, I'm responsible for these recommendations. Now, I'm willing to go out on a limb and say buy gold because I don't think it's a big limb. And I tell people 5 to 10% of their money in gold. And I know that gold's not going to zero. I mean, who knows how low Bitcoin's going to go? And I'm certainly not going to recommend that my clients or anybody that listens to my podcast go out and buy it. But 
I have said that I thought the price can go a lot higher because I think it's a bubble. So if people want on their own to buy Bitcoin and gamble that the bubble gets bigger, they can do that. I'm not going to encourage it, but I'm certainly you know, talking about the fact that it potentially could go a lot higher before it collapses and people could decide if they want to take a chance. I'm not going to recommend that people gamble, but they can decide to do it on their own. I always want to make sure that people recognize that it is a gamble and that to the extent that they buy Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency, that they only buy with money that they can afford to lose. But the fact that the price has gone up proves nothing, right? What would prove me wrong is if one day... Bitcoin actually uh, becomes less volatile, the price becomes stable, and it's being used worldwide instead of government currencies. So if people start using Bitcoin instead of dollars or euros or yen, or even if it replaces gold, right? If we start seeing rents quoted in Bitcoin, right? If, If merchants are selling products and the prices are in Bitcoin, if you can take out a loan, if a bank will give you a mortgage and the payments are in Bitcoin, right? When Bitcoin actually acts like a currency, if there's a Bitcoin bond market where companies are issuing bonds, 10, 20 year bonds, denominated in Bitcoin with coupons in Bitcoin, if Bitcoin actually succeeds in becoming money, then I'm wrong. But just because people are buying it, speculating that that may one day happen, until it actually happens, I'm not wrong. Now, if the people who are supporting Bitcoin, if they're right, they're going to make a lot of money, right? And I'm going to miss out. Hey, you know, I'm going to miss out on making money if they end up being right. But more likely, they're going to end up being wrong. Now, have people who bought Bitcoins made money? Of course, they made a lot of money if they sold. I mean, if you're out there and you're sitting on a big paper profit in Bitcoin and you haven't sold anything, you haven't made anything. You have the potential to make money if you decide to sell. But most people who own won't sell because they're they're looking for 10,000 of Bitcoin, 100,000 of Bitcoin, a million of Bitcoin. And if it ends up collapsing, the fact that you had the opportunity to make money but never cashed in on it isn't going to mean anything. Now, if you actually sell some of your Bitcoins and make some money, fantastic. You know, you, you made a good speculation, just like the people who bought many of the dot-com stocks that eventually went bankrupt. There were people that made money off these companies. The people who made the most money were the insiders who cashed out on the IPOs. The people who are going to make the most money on Bitcoin and any other cryptocurrency are the people who got in early and cashed out. The people who are getting in now, I mean, it's amazing that people say that people are getting in now are getting in early. They're getting in on the ground floor. They're not even close to the ground floor. You are the exit strategy for somebody else who got in early. Right? By the time Goldman Sachs is saying buy Bitcoin, you pretty much know that it's over. Right? Goldman Sachs wouldn't be touting this unless they wanted to get rid of the Bitcoins uh, that, that they own. But again, I am not being mean. I am not trying to take down the Bitcoin community. In fact, if anything, no one cares what I say in the Bitcoin community. I've been critical of Bitcoin for the entire rally. Has it stopped the rally from happening? No. I mean, there's nothing that I'm saying that's going to interfere. See, if Bitcoin's going to work, It doesn't matter whether I believe it's going to work or not. But what's amazing is the reaction that people have to the fact that I don't believe in it. That's why a lot of these people are acting as if it's a cult, you know, because I have to conform or I'm a bad person. I'm I'm a double agent. I'm a shill. I'm a spy. I'm trying to wreck uh, Bitcoin. In fact, this one guy made his video. He says that the media keeps bringing me on 
so that I can, you know, destroy Bitcoin. And I'm constantly on the mainstream media. I'm constantly on television because I'm opposed to Bitcoin. I mean, I'm never on television. I mean, I'm on television. I mean, I, I go on stuff like Russia Today. I mean, I do CNBC. I had one debate with Brian Kelly on CNBC. Brian Kelly's on CNBC a lot more than me, and he's a huge proponent of Bitcoin. They barely have me on. And I'm, believe me, I don't want to go on to talk about Bitcoin. I, I want to go on CNBC to talk about the dollar, to talk about the U.S. economy. They won't have me on. They, they brought me on to debate him on Bitcoin, but they won't bring me on to discuss the economy. They won't bring me on to discuss the markets. I mean, I'm, I'm hardly a mainstream shill. You know, it's difficult for me to get in uh, national media these days because they want to keep me off, because they want to silence my perspective. So, I mean, there's all this nonsense that's out there. But now it's even getting down to I'm getting threats. Uh, I was getting texts to my cell phone, anonymous texts, maybe people threatening me, threatening to disrupt my businesses, to attack my websites. It's the Bitcoin community. They're going to they're gonna take me down. You know, I mean, all this nonsense. I, I, I don't believe the threats. We'll see what happens. But again, this is typical of the type of criticism. And it shows you, you know, when you have to attack the person rather than their argument, right? When you have to make an ad hominem attack against somebody because you can't address their argument. So you try to assassinate their character, say bad things about them. The minute you've done that, you've lost the argument. Look, I don't say bad things about people who believe uh, that Bitcoin. In fact, I have a lot of sympathy. I mean, the idea that we can, you know, get rid of the central bankers, take away their power by empowering the people. You know, uh, the promise of Bitcoin, just like with Obamacare, right? All these plans sound good. The goals are laudable, yes. But when you understand the consequences, you know, ironically, Bitcoin is actually going to make the central banks look good. And not just Bitcoin, all these cryptocurrencies, because the, the people who are advocating cryptocurrencies are saying, hey, you can't trust the dollar. You can't trust the euro. Central banks are printing a lot of money. You're going to lose a lot of purchasing power. So here's the free market alternative, these cryptocurrencies. And then when a bunch of people lose a ton of money in these cryptocurrencies, it's going to make the government money look good. And the government's going to say, see, we told you so. It's just like the reason that I don't want uh, the Republican version of Obamacare, because I know it's going to fail. It's just rebranded Obamacare, and it still won't work, but it's going to give the Republicans and free markets a bad reputation because when it fails, they're going to blame the failure on the free market. So when these cryptocurrencies come crashing down, the government's going to say, you see, look how bad the free market is. When the free market creates money, it's a disaster. People lose a fortune. You got to trust the government. You got to trust the central banks. They're the ones that come up with good money. No, the cryptocurrencies are going to give real money a bad name because what is real money? Gold. Gold is real money. Silver is real money. So if you want to take away the power of the central bankers, then get out of fiat currencies into real money. Don't get out of fiat currencies into fiat cryptocurrencies. Again, that's jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. Get into real money like gold and silver. And if you want to be able to use your gold and silver in commerce as a method of payment and you want to do it easily like you can with Bitcoin, then open up an account at Gold Money. And I think that's why so many people in the Gold Money community are so skeptical and critical. I mean, in the Bitcoin community are so skeptical and critical of gold money because gold money actually delivers on the promise that cryptocurrencies make but can't keep by the very nature of, of, of what they are. So that's why they have all the emotional attacks and that's why they have all the hatred. I don't have any hatred. 
I'm just telling the truth. I'm just calling them like I see them. Now, are there some people that are in Bitcoin that probably don't care or know it's a Ponzi scheme or whatever, and they're just in there to get in and out? Yeah, they're in there. And they're not the people I care about. I mean, the people I care about are the people who are honest, good people, free market people, libertarian people, like many of the people that were there at Freedom Fest, who actually believe this, who actually believe it's going to work and have their life savings invested in Bitcoin. And I believe they're going to watch it all evaporate. And I want to get out there and I want to warn people about what I believe is going to be a disaster. Yes. Are there some people who are going to profit from this disaster? Absolutely. But it's all a zero-sum game, right? The profits that are realized by the early investors who cashed out are going to equal the losses from the later investors who did not. 